Test, there we go. All right, folks, all those running around in the kitchen and doing your stuff, it is Sunday school time. Come on in. We need a bell. We need to ring that bell. Ding, 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 ding. Sunday school hour. There we go. Just need a, a clarion call of the baritone. I'm assuming that's what that was, baritone tuba. Come on in, folks. We're ready to begin. 9.15. All right, this is interesting. I don't see a single female in the entire church. What you guys do with your women? So yeah, I'm not quite sure. It gets warm weather. It gets cold. People don't come because it's cold and there's ice and there's everything. Then it gets warm and they don't come because I don't know. So one begins to imagine it must be me. <laughs> no. Let's go ahead and uh, we'll, we'll open with prayer. Father, we thank you for this uh, wonderful day, another day in which you give us uh, first of all, life, just the fact that uh, we're alive is a great act of uh, kindness and condescension that you give to each and every one of us. We thank you, Father, that our life is ultimately wrapped up in Christ, and we uh, are thankful for this opportunity to learn more about him, to learn more about how uh, you have shown your love and care and compassion for us through him. And so we pray as we continue working through the uh, catechism that you, O oh Lord, would uh, open our eyes to be able to clearly see those truths in a way that changes us and molds us ever more to his image so that we could love you more. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, folks, we are back in the catechism question and what, uh, catechism, uh, short of catechism question number 20, which we've been taking a while on. And I think what we're going to do today is just wrap up this section that we were talking about on election. I said it was going to be a, you know, a two-parter, and then uh, Scott did that first lesson, uh, and then I kind of came in last week, and I thought I was going to finish it, <coughs> and I said we were going to talk about election. We never got to it. So today, we're going to just focus on election. So if you'll uh, turn to your catechism and look at question 20, let's go ahead and just by way of review, uh, read that question, and somebody will read that along with the answer, and we'll get started. All right, thank you, Matt. So, as we said the last several weeks, this question is a pivot question. It's pivoting us from having explored what it meant that we had fallen, that we were sinful creations, and so therefore we entered into a condition and a state of sin and misery. And now we are told, but God didn't leave us there in his grace and compassion. He moves us into a state or a condition of salvation. And as we said last week, this happens by a Redeemer, which we'll begin to flesh out in the next question. So through a Redeemer, this occurs. And also, um, we looked into last week into the fact that, uh, that that happens 
through the covenant of grace. We talked about what the covenant is. This is God uh, choosing to rescue us by fulfilling the covenant of works. The covenant of works, Adam is told that he has to obey perfectly. He's incapable of doing that. And remember, he represents all of us. So Adam, uh, in, in failing to, uh, to obey perfectly, rather than being blessed, receives condemnation. We now, because we're in union with Adam in our birth, uh, also receive that same condemnation. But God is now moving us into a state of salvation where he now acts in a way through Christ, by a redeemer, as it says, to fulfill what we could, to do what we could not do, which is fulfill the covenant of works. So that's what we were looking at last week. The part that gets everybody, however, is that middle part, God having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life. And the concerns are the word elected, and for those who can get past the word elected, the next concern is the word some. So we're gonna go ahead and deal with election. And I would say it's probably by far the second most misunderstood uh, uh, doctrine, if you will, that we find in Scripture. Most of you can probably guess what the most misunderstood doctrine is in Scripture. Oh, sure you can. It's universal. It's uh, across the board. Say again. Um, I think those are, that's pretty significant. Nature of man, the fact that we're sinful, the fact that we're fallen, that might play into what I think is the most overall misunderstood thing, which is, okay, I do recognize that things are messed up, but how do I get better? Say again? Yes, I think by far, it doesn't matter whether you're talking, I mean, we all like to look at Roman Catholics and say, oh, it's all about works. And of course, Roman Catholic will tell you, no, it's about grace, but grace is just that God comes alongside you in Christ and graciously empowers you through the sacramental system and the priestly system and all that to be good. Uh, the thing is, uh, <laughs> evangelicals are no better. If you listen to, we were just listening to Christian radio on the way over here, and it's all about, God's going before me and I'm conquering in him and all this, you know, it's just, it's a different manifestation of the same phenomena though. And it's all about, you know, power and God's gonna enable me and and anyway, I said I was not going to talk about this, but this is most misunderstood is the fact that, yes, um, the way that you get right with God is by doing, is, uh, what's the ex expression that now you hear everybody saying? Be better, be better. Just be better. Try harder. Do, yeah, do better. No, but you hear that now all the time. Somebody will call somebody out and just say, be better. So that's, that's essentially the biggest, but this comes number two, and it's not far behind. So let's talk a little bit about election. First of all, is it biblical? Well, no, actually, no, no, what? First of all, what is it saying? God from all eternity. So it's saying that God has picked predestination, right? The word means your destiny, your destiny is predetermined. Predestin uh, predestination, election, the, God, the fact that God chooses some. This drives some people nuts. The idea that God picks the winners and that kind of thing uh, drives us crazy. So what it's claiming is simply this. We're all in an estate of sin and misery. We're all in a condition of being fallen. We're all in a condition of sin. We're living in the consequences, the misery, the consequences of that sin. And as we've already established, man lacks the ability to do anything uh, beyond cosmetic fixes. Fundamentally, we lack the ability 
to alter that condition of sin and misery. So God chooses to reverse it, but he does not choose that for everyone. He chooses to save some, and he chooses to not save others. That's essentially election, and then the rest of the story we know, we have no problem with. It's that little pivot point of <clears throat> God choosing. So is this a biblical doctrine? Uh, is this something that we just made up because we want to you know, say, we're the good guys, and we can, you know, in our denomination, we're the elect, and you're not, and you know, these guys are going to hell, and oh, they don't believe like we do, and certainly the pagans, because that's, that's the, been the accusation, that election is just simply a tool to basically say we're the ones that are really chosen by God. But is it a biblical doctrine? Well, let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 1. Everybody there? And if we're reading, let's start in verse 3. Listen to what it says. Everybody's got it? Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, so who we're talking about, we're talking about God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but he's saying the one who is blessed is God the Father, who has blessed us in Christ, this is an important word. Anytime Paul talks about in Christ, he's talking about union with Christ because we're in union, we're connected with him. So we've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In, uh, okay, so uh, very, very clear. He has chosen us to be blameless. He's chosen us to be saved. He's chosen us to be different from the rest of the world. Very clear word, chosen. And then he continues on. Uh, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So again, now that word predestined. So here we have choosing and predestining, uh, again, making our destiny predetermined, what, so that we would be adopted. So we already know that uh, adoption is a consequence of being saved, so it's very clear that what he's talking about is he's electing, he's choosing some to, to be transferred out of the world of sin and, and, and all the muck with that to a life of blamelessness, to be predestined to become sons, to become adopted, sons and daughters of God, so it's clearly, it's clear he's talking about salvation, right? So very, very clear that it's in Scripture. Well, let's look at some other passages. Uh, if you look at, uh, by the way, this is not something just new to the uh, New Testament. If we go all the way back, let's look at, um, uh, let's go all the way to back to Joshua. Joshua just passed the Pentateuch. We'll look at Joshua 24 verses two through three. And Joshua's here uh, recounting, you know what, let's start in verse one because it tells us what's going on. He's, he's renewing the covenant with them at Shechem. And it says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Okay, so here's God uh, reminding people that there was a day in which their ancestors, in this case Terah, particularly who was uh, father of Abraham, uh, was a pagan, and Abraham was a pagan, and they all lived in pagan lands and did pagan things and all that other stuff. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Esau, and so on and so on and so on. The point is, there is an initiative that is taken by God. It doesn't use the word chosen, doesn't use the word predestination. But it's this idea that they were over there doing their thing, and I went and I took Abraham and started this whole thing with him. So it's very, very clear that it is um, God who's uh, uh, taking the initiative. Let's flip back a book to Deuteronomy 7. Let's take a look at chapter 7, verse 6. You got it? Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Again, holy just simply means to be separated, to be set aside, set apart from the rest of the world. For you are a people set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are in the face of the earth. Now, if we were to go on in verse 7, it would tell us that this is a gracious choice. Uh, remember, grace just simply means unmerited favor. There is nothing you do to earn it or to deserve it. Verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Uh, and then it goes on and on. And there's elsewhere where it uses other things that's not because you were a good people uh, and so on so in other words there was nothing inherent in the people of Israel or in Abraham or anything else that he would choose them for that special relationship because when we talk about salvation again salvation is from sin but it's also to something and it's back to a relationship with God as it as it was meant to be in the garden yes Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 and 7. Uh, we, can, we can go to uh, Paul. Let's go back to the New Testament. I'm going to probably stop here on just trying to show that it's a biblical thing. But we can go to Romans chapter 11. And here he's talking about Israel. And this is more than we're going to get into right now, but I'll just mention it in passing. He's talking about the fact that Israel is a nation. You could be born into the covenant. You were a Jew, you were part of that covenant, and so on, just like you can be born into the church. But at some point, you yourself have to make a choice for Christ. And if you do that, then, it, then that's a manifestation of your election. He says in verse 5... Uh, now, let's just, you know, read the whole passage. Uh, we'll start in verse 1, just to get the context. I ask then, has God rejected his people? In other words, by, by Christ coming along and, and Gentiles now coming to faith, does that mean that Christ has rejected 
Jews. By no means, he says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Oh, there's that word foreknow, which is straight also from Romans chapter 8. Maybe we'll look at that one verse as well. He foreknew them. He already had knowledge of them. And it doesn't just mean that he was aware of them. Foreknowledge uh, implies um, uh, selection, as it were. Do you not know what the scripture says uh, of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. So right there he's saying, look, there was a time uh, in the days of uh, Jeremiah where things were pretty bad. And uh, Jeremiah felt that he was like the only one left. And God comes along and says, no, that's not the case. Uh, there's a number of others uh, who, were, who were out there. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Elijah. I don't know why I'm jumping into Jeremiah. Um, there's others out there that I have chosen. And these, I mean, but he's talking about all Israelites, but he's saying, you know, all these others are, are, have returned to the pagan god Baal. But I have chosen these particular ones. And so the key thing is, uh, what verse are we looking at? There we go, there we go. Verse 5, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. So Paul is saying, yeah, all the Israelites today, uh, they're God's people in, sense, in, the, in the sense that they're born into the grace, uh, the covenant of grace. But of those who really believe, there's a, there's a remnant, he calls it. And we don't know what a remnant means. Is it 10%? Is it 5%? Is it 25%? You know, we don't know. Clearly, not all Jews became believers at that time. Uh, enough of them did. I mean, quite a few did. But what are the numbers? Uh, let's just say less than half, probably. I think it's a fair number to say. Uh, but it basically says that they are, there's this remnant. But the key word, again, is they're chosen by grace. And that's the key thing. So, uh, Chelsea, we're in Romans chapter 11, by the way. Chosen by grace. And then he goes on, verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written, and it goes on to talk about that. So, now we see something very curious. This remnant is chosen by grace. It has nothing to do with what they did. It's not basis of works. He says it's all grace. And so the very thing that they were pursuing, Israel was saying, we're going to try harder, we're going to try harder, we're going to try harder, because he's talking about the Pharisees and, and that whole system that had been developed in Israel, much like the church has fallen into the same thing of do, you know, do, uh, do your good works. And he's saying the very thing they were looking for, which was salvation, they failed to obtain it because you don't get there by works. You get there by grace. And those who got it uh, obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Their hearts were unable. So we see there uh, the end result of what election is. You obtain salvation. You obtain the very thing that others are working for, but that work doesn't get you there. So you guys see where that's coming from? Okay, let maybe just flip back a page or two, and let's, we'll finish this section by looking at Romans 8. And that uh, famous section starting in verse 28. There's a pattern there. Paul talks about, he says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So there we see God at work shaping circumstances in the world for our good. Now we can argue, what, what is our good? Is it that I get the Mercedes? Is it that I get, you know, the pretty girl? 
you know, whatever it is that sometimes we imagine is our good is not what God means by our good, okay? He knows what's ultimately for our good. But the point is, he somehow can work all the different circumstances of the universe so they all work together for our good. We all love that verse because we all want things to work in our favor, right? Uh, even if sometimes we disagree with, with that, you know, what's in our favor. But we all know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. He has a purpose and he's called us to that purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so there we see, again, very, very clearly God at work uh, doing something and calling us. He knew us before the foundation of the world, and so he makes a choice. He, he, he's chosen us to be the ones who will become like Christ, and he works from there. So, okay, let me just stop there for now. And the next thing I want to do is I want to get into objections. That's really where the meat and potatoes of this whole thing is. But that is, in general, the biblical doctrine of election, that you and I are incapable of arising out of the situation in which we're in, uh, the estate of sin and misery, and so God is the one who has to take the initiative. To take the initiative means he looks and he has to choose whom he's going to save. He could have chosen zero. He could have chosen everyone, but he's not. He's chosen some number in between, undetermined for us, fixed in the mind of God, but undetermined for us. And so he's chosen that amount of people, and now he takes the steps necessary to bring them to faith. That's essentially the doctrine of of election. There's a caricature uh, that exists out there that people who do teach doctrines of election and hold to that as a view, and I mean, we're going to get into all sorts of things, caricatures, but one of those is uh, one that it denies free will, which we'll talk about in a moment. It does not deny free will in the least. But the other one is that this is the central doctrine of which you know, we, we um, center everything about. And so that's what Presbyterian Reformed people do. That's all they do is talk about election. So some of you have been here decades, literally decades. And some of you have been here now maybe a couple of years. And let me ask the, the ones who have been here perhaps a little less time. How often have you heard us talk about election? Sermons and, okay, Rob, you're saying one time? First time, okay. Maybe once, maybe twice. Lang, you've been here longer than I have been here. Only during Sunday school. Only during Sunday school. Okay, it's probably come out a few times in a sermon here and there. I'd, you know, that kind of thing. John Calvin, of course, uh, the caricature is that Calvin is cold and heartless and ruthless because election, 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 election. Uh, I just heard um, a Catholic theologian talking about John Calvin. He was speaking very graciously about him and, and trying to be fair and say that, you know, he, he made some changes. And he looked at his, he mentioned the Institutes of the Christian Religion and said that was a handbook for how to run the church. Completely missed it. It was a book of theology. So apparently he's never read it. He was just referencing it. He referenced that and the book of church order, the first one that Calvin wrote, which was a manual for running the church for the church in Geneva, just like we have BCOs and the Catholic Church has the same thing or whatever. Completely misunderstood. Uh, If you look at the Institutes of Christian Religion, which to this day are still used as textbooks for learning theology, uh, Calvin, the cold and heartless guy who focuses on election. Uh, Anybody ever read the Institutes and know when and where Calvin talks about election? 
First chapter, right? Must be the very first, maybe the second chapter. So the Institutes has four, four volumes, four books. It's somewhere in the middle of volume three, deep into uh, the Institutes. And it comes, and this is exactly how you see Paul using it in the Ephesians passage and in the Romans passage. Romans passage, he's talking about us and how we've been saved and how we've been brought into a relationship with God. He's doing the exact same thing at the beginning of Ephesians. Remember, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of all these things, he's blessed us uh, you know, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We just read that in a moment, and, and all about the privileges that we have. Election is always offered, not as a before. God chooses you, and so are you one of the chosen? I hope you are, because if not, you're going to hell. <laughs> no, election is always offered as a guarantee of all, because, you know, if we really understood the state of sin and misery in which we're at, then we would better understand the wonder of our salvation. Right? When, when we still have the mindset that I just got to try a little harder and I, you know, maybe I can't do it on my own so Jesus gives me that little power boost. You know, and, and, and again, I've said, it doesn't matter whether you're Roman Catholic or evangelical. This, is, this problem is happening on both sides of the aisle with different historical manifestations, but the same thing. Jesus comes alongside and gives me that little power boost. He gives me what I need to pull it off. Once we're past that nonsense and we recognize that it is completely all by grace and what God has done, the wonder of, of our salvation really takes hold. We realize, utterly amazing. And then the next thing that comes into your thought is, I don't deserve this, I, I'm gonna lose it. You know, I'm gonna do something to make God just sit there and say, you know, I've had enough. You're just not worth this effort. <clears throat> and the point is, we're not worth that effort. But that is where election comes in. Is sit there and say, look, I started it, and I'm gonna finish it. And that's what God is essentially doing with election. Does that make sense? Every time you see election being used in Scripture, and even if you look back at those passages in Deuteronomy and Joshua and so on that we just looked at a moment ago, every one of those passages in the context of God saving his people and assuring them that they're his, even in the midst of all their failures and everything else. So it's always wrapped up in the doctrine of assurance. And it's meant to show you that it didn't start with you, it didn't depend on you, and it's not gonna finish, it's not gonna continue with you, and it's not gonna finish with you. It's all because of what God is doing. Does that make sense? All right, so with that, do I have any questions before I jump into common misconceptions and misunderstandings? No, it's all good? Yeah? All right. Okay, with the time we have remaining, what I wanna do is I wanna hit on some of the common objections and misunderstandings that often come up. Um, this catechism question brings up this idea of unconditional election. That's the term that we use in theology. Uh, your election does, is not conditioned on anything in you. It does not depend on who you are. It doesn't depend on what you've done. It does not depend on your background or your credentials or your lineage, or your ethnicity, your sex, etc., etc. It is completely unconditional. And so once we get that, the question begins, be, uh, becomes, why would God choose this person and not that person? Now what's behind that objection? He's chosen this person, but not that person. What is usually behind that objection? It's not fair. So say again. 
God loves everybody, that's right. And the implication, therefore, is that God owes everybody. Okay, you can already see how we've completely reversed the situation. God does not owe anything to us. We owe him everything. God does not love everybody. Oh, what, did you just say that? Oh, I'm leaving the church. This is an unloving church. I've actually literally had people tell me that in this church. You actually believe that? You are unloving. Uh, I'm going to go to a church, and they did. They went to the mainline liberal Presbyterian church where we love everybody regardless of their sexual orientation or whatever sins they commit and so on, and blah, 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 blah. All because we argued that God does not love everybody in that sense of which we think of. So the bottom, the bottom, li- bottom line is this. What was the result of our sin? Or even if we're not going to take it all, and we should see it as humanity as a whole, but even if you look at every person individually, biblically, let's go by the Bible. What does the Bible say is the, the, the just result of your sin? What? Yep. Death, condemnation, right? Eternal condemnation and so on. So there it is. Okay, so is it unfair if a person receives what they deserve? We're just going through this logically. It is not unfair that a person receives what they deserve, right? Okay, not unfair at all. Uh, that's, that's exactly the, um, uh, the definition of fairness, of, oh, what's that other word we use? Justice. The person gets what they deserve. Nothing at all unfair about that. The question then comes, well, why does he then choose these and choose these others? That's not fair. It is perfectly fair. He chooses to give grace. Whoa, that really uh, boosted the signal. Um, But, you know, he chooses to give, let's see, give grace, grace, because it's so much bigger than everything else. To some, but not to others. The others are not getting anything unjust. You see, some are being shown mercy, unmerited favor. That's the key thing. I keep harping on that because somewhere in the back of our mind, we just keep thinking, no, this person gets it because they deserve it, and there's something in them. No, if it's unmerited favor, then God doesn't owe anything. So one of the very first objections is to understand that God is not doing anything that is improper. Take a look at Matthew 20, 15. See if we can get a a handle on that. Somehow Jesus... um, was aware of all these objections. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Matthew 20, verse 15. And you know this parable, this parable is the the one of the laborers in the vineyard Right, God, uh, Jesus uh, commonly uses parables to kind of uh, lower the defenses of people, brings them into a story, and then hits them with you know the punchline. So this one is the one about um, uh, people working in the vineyard, and he gives he, he he contracts with those who come early in the morning to pay them one denarius. Right, hey, you're going to get a hundred bucks today. And people who come midday, he, tell, he, you know, he tells them, yeah, come and work. And then people who come, like, literally in the last hour of work, 
And when they all line up, you know, to get paid, because in those days, um, just like day laborers today, you get paid right on the spot. The guys who come first, uh, he actually starts in the reverse. And he goes to the guys who came last with only an hour's work, and he pays them one denarius. Hey, here's your 100 bucks. And so the guys who are coming earlier say, wow, we're going to get more because we deserve more, right? That's what you're implying. So then he pays the guys who come in midday, the same one denarius, and then he pays the guys who started at the beginning, one denarius. Uh, now, you know, Russ, you manage a bunch of men in your roofing company. Uh, I don't know if, you know, what reaction you'd get if you did the exact same thing. Probably would get, th this is like a real life example because, yeah, if you grab somebody who only showed up uh, the last hour of work and you paid them the exact same for a job as the other guys, I bet you you'd hear something. Say again? <laughs> they all leave together. I, I think Jesus is trying to make a point not on how to run your business, but uh, it is a point. And so the answer to the guy is, friend, I am doing you no wrong. And this is the guy who's saying, I thought I was going to get more. I worked more than these guys. I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and, and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. And here's the, key, the kicker in verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? There's the ticket, isn't it? Uh, in essence, you know, uh, that, that's what essentially we say. It's not fair, but it's perfectly fair. What we deserved was condemnation, and he chooses to be generous to some and to relieve them of that condemnation is, is the point that we're getting at here. Uh, so that's the first objection. It's not fair, and I, uh, because of time, I'm just going to stop there. Uh, I can say a whole lot more about it, but this, this uh, um, answer, I think, is very clear. God is giving us exactly what we deserve, and he chooses, he chooses to be generous to others. Uh, does that make it less fair for the others? No, everybody's getting precisely what they deserve or they're getting uh, grace and uh, that does not remove his fairness elsewhere. Any questions uh, or comments about that particular objection before we move on? No. Usually this is the, like the class where everybody's engaging and so on. So I'm either so crystal clear. Uh, Chelsea, save the day. Well, we went over a whole lot of those here at the beginning, and we, and we went through those, I think, so if I can give a very short answer, if I think, if I understand what you're asking. So, yes, we have brothers and sisters within the evangelical realm of, you know, the church uh, who, who, who say the Bible is the word of God, and so I have to believe it, and they see those passages on predestination. Uh, and by the way, they, don't, they would not have a problem with this part here. Uh, the fairness is not an issue for them. Uh, usually the issue for them is um, the next question uh, or the next objection I was going to talk about, which has to do with how does it play out. And, um, and usually their objection is it, it denies us free will. 
and that which is not not the case but that's how they understand it and because they misunderstand the doctrine of election as denying free will if god chooses then you know you're locked in so there's no free will for you what they do the way they get around it which is i think is what you're asking how do they deal with the fact that it's in the text is they come up with a concept that's completely uh first of all actually itself is not found in scripture it's speculation but it's even when you speculate itself doesn't hold up and it's the idea that god uh, so they they have to affirm two things you choose christ by the way we affirm that you choose christ right and they have to affirm god chooses you so what they do is they reverse the order in terms of not the order in times in terms of time you'll see in a moment but in terms of priority what we're teaching is God chooses you, and as a result of God's choice, in the course of history, you will eventually, and we'll talk about it in just a moment, you will eventually make a choice for Christ and choose him because you've been chosen, you've been enabled, you've been equipped to do so, where others who are not chosen are not equipped and enabled to do so. They flip that. You choose Christ, and because of that, God chooses you. Now, temporally, he still chooses you first because he stands here before the, the creation of the world. He looks down the tunnel of time and he sees you. Um, you know, that's a caricature. You might be saying, well, that's how, no, that's actually what they say. God looks down the tunnel of time and he sees you choosing him. And because you chose him, he chooses you. Now, we've just read a bunch of passages that kept saying, there was nothing in you. There was nothing in you. There was nothing in you. There was nothing that you did. There's nothing about who you are. It's because God simply chose you unconditionally. And yet here we say, but there is one condition. I chose him. I have my one meritorious work that I can hold on to. You see, and so that is usually where they, where they land. But it does let us, let us segue into the next objection, which is, if election is so, then salvation is completely automatic. In other words, uh, as one person put it, if God has chosen me to be saved, then I will be saved no matter what I do. Um, but the Bible does not teach that you're saved automatically, that God elects you and poof, you become a Christian. We already saw, you know, God works all things together for good. There's many things that God chooses to do, but how does he do them? God has chosen to use the, un, the, the unnatural, is what I was going to say, the natural unfolding, I put the un before the natural, the natural unfolding of events is what God uses to bring things about. In other words, to put it in popular terms, God uses means. Okay, does that make sense? God uses uh, normal, everyday things. So when he makes a choice of a person, what he then chooses is also all the events and all the different circumstances that have to come together so that that person is either raised in a Christian home or comes into contact with the gospel at some point and, you know, whatever. And all the different circumstances that work in that person's life and everything else to bring them to that moment in which they choose Christ. So there's nothing automatic about the election. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, the, the so-called hound of heaven, which has become a popular term, you know, starting in the 19th century, uh, because of uh, um, Spurgeon using that term, uh, the, the idea that God pursues us, and even no matter how far you can run, the story of Jonah, right? God catches up with you and so on. But he lays it out. You hear us say it whenever we receive new members. 
that we as elders have this privilege of hearing everybody's story and it's all these different stories and yet they're all the same story. Because the same story is always, and the person recognized their sinfulness and came to Christ, you know, made that choice and chose Christ to be saved by him and so on. But what's interesting is all the different circumstances, the moving pieces that God works. So election is not automatic by any means. Let's briefly deal with then the free will question. The Westminster Confession of Faith is the, is the longer, uh, you know, the word confession in the old days does not mean true lies and confession and, oh, I'm so sorry, and I gotta tell you I did this terrible thing. Confession is, today we would say profession. It's I confess these things to be true. I profess those things to be true. So the Westminster Confession of Faith has a whole chapter on free will, chapter nine. And it comes almost at the very beginning of the whole discussion of salvation. So when people sit there and say, well, you Presbyterian, and I hear it all the time. Literally, and, I, and I'll hear it on the radio, or nobody listens to the radio anymore, but you know, on the internet or wherever it is, people, I, I've literally heard pastors and saying, oh, those Calvinists, those Calvinists, they don't believe in free will. And then we have to open up and say, actually, this chapter nine is about, <laughs> and their heads explode. So we do believe in free will. You do make choices, but you've heard me say this before. On what basis do you choose? Whatever it is that you choose, whatever. You, know, you chose to put on a blue jacket, and Langdon chose to wear a tie. Jonathan chose not to wear a tie. Why? It's not a trick question. Why do you choose those things? Because you wanted to. I, isn't that amazing? It's just such a deep answer. Because I wanted to. Every choice you make is driven by your wants, by your inclinations, by your desires. And then, you know, you've heard me talk about this before. I'll just briefly talk about it. It's the old R.C. Sproul illustration is so good when he says that, you know, you've, you've always chosen, or you always choose according to your desires, wants, and inclinations. You've never chosen anything you don't want. And then it's like, oh, there's plenty of things, right? We got some young people here. I guess Sunday school today must have been uh, a little shorter. And so here you are. And the first thing it says is, I don't get to do everything I want. Because blah, 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 blah. So your parents come to you and I want to do this. I want, and they say, no. You want to go do this? Well, if you do that, the consequence is going to be this. Right? You don't want to clean up your room? Then you're going to lose, I don't know what they, 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 they used to be. In the old days, it used to say, go to your room, which is what kids want now. <laughs> go to the room and lock me away. <laughs> Whatever the case may be. But, Okay, so your parents sit there and say, no, you're not going to do this, or, or if you do this, this is going to happen, and you say, well, I didn't want to do it, but I did what he told me to do, and so you, actually, you did want to do it. You did want to obey your parents, and what, what you're unhappy about is the circumstances and the choices that were put before you, but given the two choices of losing whatever privileges you were going to lose or obeying your parents, you wanted to obey your parents more then you wanted to lose those privileges. So you're not God, you're not in control of every circumstances, which is really what we think when we say, oh, free will. Free will means I can choose whatever I want in every circumstance. No, it means given the circumstances put before you, you're free to choose the one that you most want. And what God does is he works all the circumstances out so that it's always what he wants. And because he created you and he knows how you're made, you will always choose according to your desires. And at some point, you're presented with the gospel, but because you're an unbeliever and you're fallen into the state of sin and misery, you never want Jesus. 
And so you reject them and reject them and reject them until God takes the initiative and regenerates you and makes you a new creation. And when he makes you a new creature, essentially, that's right, 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 5, 17 literally says you become a different species of human, you have a different set of characteristics, and those different characteristics include different wants and desires and inclinations. And now you want to choose Christ. You see, it's a very, very simple system that we see every day. You know, you've all changed in other ways, not maybe as dramatic as that, right? Like, when you get older, some people, I still haven't gotten to that level of maturity despite the white hair and all that, but there are some people as they get older, they mature into liking liver. There's no child who likes liver, okay? Uh, no sane child who hasn't been beaten. Um, but, you know, you mature into it. There's something in you that changes, but we've all seen that. There, we, there's things that we did not like when we were younger, and all of a sudden we're like, this is pretty cool, we like it. We change, our inclinations change, our wants change. Well, that's exactly what we're talking about here. That makes sense when we're talking about liver, but it's exactly the same thing when we're talking about choosing Christ. Does that make sense? So that really deals with yet another uh, objection. Let me open up my notes that went to sleep here. Where did I find that? I skipped ahead. Yeah, you know, this idea then, once we understand that, we can deal with several objections. There's one that says, well then, there's, you know, election just just condemns me because if I'm not one of the elect, then there's nothing I can do to be saved. And and no matter how hard I try, I'm not going to be saved. God's preventing me. And the problem behind that thinking is this idea that you want to be saved. Truly, I mean, mean, if you ask, uh, sadly, um, I've got an uncle who's not a believer, and he will tell you he's not a believer, and he will acknowledge that he just can't do it. But if you ask him, do you want to go to hell? He says, no. And I mean, we've had this discussion. My mom's had this discussion with him again and again. His brother's had this discussion with him again and again, and he'll say, no, I I, I don't want that. I want what you guys have. Well, all you have to do is believe. I, I just can't. It just, I can't buy into it. So, Yes, in that regard, if you ask people, do you want to be saved? Nobody wants what's going on around us. They can look and you can see all this uh, craziness and nuttiness. Even the elites who are trying to shape things from their you know, secret bunker, whatever, the Illuminati are ruling, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Even they're trying to shape everything because there's something wrong. Everybody recognizes things are messed up, right? So that's not the issue. The question is, there is no person that sits there and says, I want to believe in Jesus, I want to, in fact, I do believe in him, but what if I'm one of the elect? And the answer is, if you truly do believe in Christ, if you really have chosen him, not, not you know, the pretend, well, I choose him to be my power cell that empowers me to be good or, you know, any, but you truly trust in him to save you and you say, but now I hope I'm one of the elect. If you've done that, you are one of the elect, don't you see? because you would never have gotten to that point without God having chosen you. Because you were incapable of doing that on your own, and so God had to empower you, to regenerate you, to equip you and enable you to make that choice in the first place. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, you're denying me, you're denying people who want to be saved, no. Yeah, the, the point, the, the easiest answer is no one who is not elect wants to be saved. And as soon as they sit there and say, yeah, yeah, but 
walk them through all those different passages, like the ones we've been looking at, that show, well, you know, like Ephesians, we didn't look at Ephesians 2, but Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead people do nothing, right? Uh, John chapter 6. What's Jesus saying in John chapter 6? Right to this point. No, I'm saying no one who is not elect wants to be saved. No one who is not chosen wants to be saved. Okay, so there's a little bit of a question of what that means, wrestling with being saved. Uh, There's a lot of folks who look and say, things are messed up, what about this Christianity thing? And they weigh in and whatever, in the end they reject it. Uh, yeah, so uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're elect now, or, or that they're not elect. Um, let's just put it in ultimate terms. They weigh it, they look at it, and they say, like Ben Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was a, the perfect example of this. You know, Benjamin Franklin was good friends with George Whitfield, the famous Anglican preacher of the First Great Awakening, and he did so much in, in terms of reviving the colonies. There would have been no American Revolution, no Constitution, no, none of those things that we uh, uh, say were the, uh, the foundational underpinnings of our nation, a nation unless the First Great Awakening had revived the people spiritually across the board and across the whole seaboard, essentially. And it wasn't just George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and others. But uh, George Whitfield was good friends with Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin uh, talked about uh, how uh, wonderful it was and how the system made perfect sense and everything that Whitfield said was, was elegant and, and, and right, but in the end, he, yeah, it's like, I can't believe it. It was exactly like my uncle, you know. But he looked at it, he weighed it, and he said, yeah, in the end, Christianity's not for me. At least not this, you know, this version of Christianity. So in, in ultimate terms, that's where the story ends, and that person was not elect. The, just because they look and they weigh it, you know, they're not stupid. They, okay, I'll, I'll weigh the, the demands of, um, or, you know, uh, of Islam, or let's look at secular humanism, let's weigh it all, and I'll make a choice. The, fo- the point is the person will never choose Christ, truly choose Christ, not say, I want to be a Christian because of the benefits or whatever, but Truly, you know, I'm a sinner without any hope except in the sovereign mercy of, of Jesus and uh, of God and Jesus Christ. I cling to him. And so that person will never want to do that on their own. The struggle just shows that they recognize that they're broken. And uh, now many times the struggle is a step along the way to salvation for people who are elect. Um, so that's why you can't, you know, uh, go around saying yes, no, whatever because what seems to be a rejection now may not be later. You know, I had the privilege of being involved with a, a gentleman in his 80s. Oh, go ahead, Lang. That's right. Like right, right there with him. Yeah. Say that one again. Part of the thing that worries about God, he, 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 given all the information he's given 
Yeah. Yeah, but you, you can't always, uh, it is ultimately black and white. Yeah. But you, you can't look as a human being and say where they are in that. Per- and I was going to say, there was a guy who, and I met him in his 80s, and uh, he was not a believer. His wife was a regular and very faithful member of the church. And I, I was an intern in the church, and I went to go visit him with the senior pastor. The senior pastor had made this trip many times, and he unfolded the gospel yet again, and the guy like, always would take little snipe, you know, little jabs, and nah, 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 nah make fun of all that and whatever, and didn't get anywhere. And um, it turned out I was a military guy, uh, former military, he was former military, and we kind of began talking about that, and that built a relationship. And this man who was born to believing parents who had prayed for him for years that he might come to faith before he died, and then they went out and they died, and so on. Uh, his wife praying for him for literally decades. And finally in his late 80s, uh, certainly early 80s, he gave his life to Christ. Um, but it was a process, you know, and so I just had the privilege of having found the connection the other folks hadn't in terms of the military. God used those circumstances and had him fight in World War II and then brought some, you know, young guy who uh, had uh, been involved in, in the Cold War and some other things and brought them together on that one afternoon just so that he would finally listen, Okay. Uh, let, let me just end with the John 6 thing because we are past our time. It's 1010. John 6, 44. Jesus is dealing with these objections because he's, he's talking about that salvation is only through him and it has to be in there. Everybody's like, ah, this is nuts. And he says in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So how unequivocal is Jesus? Some people, no. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And some people um, uh, object to that word draw and say, well, that's not compelling. That means, and uh, and again, I'm going to go back to R.C. Sproul because he does such a good job on this and his little uh, book, Chosen by God, um, or you ever heard him teach on it, you know, he uses this example. They want to use the word draw like drawing water out of a well, right? And, um, and, and, and they say, well, by draw, it means that he's attracting them. God makes himself so attractive, and then R.C. Sproul says, it's like using the word woo. God tries to woo them to come, and that's what it means. No one come to the Father unless the Father draws them, woos them to him, right? And then, you know, that becomes then an, an appeal to the person making a decision. But R.C. says, no, the word is actually draw as in drawing water from a well. And what happens when you draw water from a well? You compel it against the force of gravity, against its natural inclination to come up. You don't woo it up, and then he goes, yeah, here, water, 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 water. You don't woo it up, right? So it's very clear, no one is able to do that. And then in, at the end of the passage, in John six sixty-five, he says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. There is a gift that is granted by the Father that enables us, and that's the gift of regeneration, the gift of faith, that rena- enables us to come to him. So that objection that, you know, I really want to be saved, but you know, what if I'm one of the elect? 
the only reason you want to be saved and make the choice is because you are one of the elect. And if you're not one of the elect, you will never really want to be saved. You'll never choose the true Christ. Does that make sense? Okay, we're gonna probably have to leave off there because we're out of time even after giving two weeks to this. There still could be a whole lot more we can say, but we'll leave it there and uh, hopefully that'll be of some use. Now, I'm not gonna be here next week. I'll be traveling uh, with MTW stuff. Scott is supposed to teach. Now, you all heard about Scott's little episode last night, so I don't know what the deal is, but we'll have somebody here. Something will be going on next week. Uh, more than likely onto the next question, which has to do with the Redeemer, who it is that is gonna save, um, because that's what this question does. It pivots us from the state of sin and misery to the state of salvation by a Redeemer. So now we're gonna spend the rest of the catechism section, not the whole catechism, this section, on dealing with who that Redeemer is and what he's doing for us. It should be the exciting part. So anyway, let's, uh, let's close with prayer and we'll get ready to uh, worship that very Redeemer. Father, what an amazing thing that uh, we can sit here and question uh, all sorts of things about our salvation, but it's amazing how much we give ourselves credit. Um, it is so easy for us to not see the depth of our sin, so easy for us to disregard the consequence of our failure to obey you and what we really deserve. And when we do that, then we lose out on the wonder of what it means that you have acted and you have taken the initiative and you have done everything necessary uh, to bring us to um, uh, not just a state of salvation, but in all these passages that we saw, ultimately for the purpose of bringing us into union with you, into a relationship with you, a restored relationship, which is what we were meant to be. And that is the amazing part for us. Father, some of these things can be hard. And even though we've, we've gone through them, Biblically, and shall we even say logically, uh, they take some time to digest and to internalize, and we pray, Lord, that you help us to do that, that you help us to see the wonder of what it is that you've done. We thank you that every time we see the doctrine of election or predestination, it's always offered as an assurance that you are the one who started it, and you are the one who will finish our salvation, and you will get us from point A to point Z. Thank you, Father, that our election depends, our salvation depends wholly upon you and not upon us. Therefore, it is sure and beyond any doubt. And for that, we give you thanks and all the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.